Well, today we finish up a short three-week series that we are calling Come to the Table. And we said in week one, just a couple of short weeks ago, we said that at the table we do a few things. We first said simply that at the table we eat. It's a place to eat. Uh, it's a place also to express our gratefulness. And thirdly, it's a place to belong. Uh, Americans, we, we love to eat, don't we? You agree? Just kind of nod. Uh, if they say that, uh, if it's true that what they say, that if you are what you eat, then we're the tastiest, saltiest, crunchiest, most thoroughly processed high fructose corn syrup people on the planet. I mean, we love to eat. Um, food is as American as apple pie. We would shout that from sea to shining sea if we didn't have a mouthful of pie. We eat other nations under the table, and then we eat the table that's full of fiber. Uh, in 1867, do you know this? Our nation purchased Alaska just for extra freezer space. In 1974, we made history as a country when we put pizza on a bagel. And the Russian snack program has not been able to keep up with us ever since. We love our food. As Americans, we put food inside of other foods to create new kinds of foods. Uh, at the fair this week and last, there's the donut burger. You know where I'm going with this, right? And it reminds me of that passage that some of you know. We've used it for years in our nation as a call to prayer and renewal. First Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, confess their sins, I will hear them from heaven and heal their land. And I feel like the donut burger alone should call out First Chronicles, shouldn't it? God, heal us. Heal our land. Forgive us for what we've done. There's the donut burger. Then there's the McRib I've learned about this week. The McRib sandwich is shaped like a rib, but it's actually a pork shoulder. And this week, some of you learned what a chicken nugget is really made of. And if you, like me, follow University of Mississippi Medical Center on Twitter, on Thursday, a pediatrician from just a mile away told us what's really true about the chicken nugget. And I cannot say it in church. Because unlike commercial airlines, we don't have a brown bag underneath every seat. But we love food in America. We love food on TV. It's not just enough to eat it with our mouths. We got to chew it with our eyes. There's the, the food network. There's all kind of channels. The cooking channel and Bravo has various shows about food and eating 24-7. What uh, what's your favorite cooking show? Shout it out. You got one in mind? What's your favorite cooking show? Okay. There's Top Chef, I heard that. There's Iron Chef. There's Cupcake Wars, right? There's Around the World in 80 Plates. There's a lot of interesting shows. There's uh, my favorite, Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. You know this one with this guy. Take a look. I don't know how you say his last name. It's Guy something. And I don't know how you say his last name, but I know that he uses ranch dressing as hair gel. <laughs> And another show besides diners, drive-ins, and dives is Man versus Food. Do you know this one? We don't have a picture of this guy, but maybe you've seen it. He goes to places. He's been to Mississippi a bunch, no surprise. 
but he's, he travels all around our land and goes into fabled landmarks and really cool eateries and people will gather around and the locals will chant and cheer and as they chant his name this guy Adam attempts to eat stuff like seven pound burritos which he's done successfully there's food in America there's food in TV and you know there's food all up in the Bible and food is a gift from God it strengthens and straightens our bones. It lends joy to our gatherings. You and I, when we gather around the table and we eat, we ought to receive food as a gift from earth, as a gift from heaven. We ought to partake of it with thankfulness and with simplicity. And when we've had our fill, we ought to stop. We ought to nourish around the table. We ought to nourish our bodies and our souls. And we ought to involve others and think of others who need to be fed as well. But on occasion, we need to feast. What does that mean? Let me be honest. It means to overdo it a bit. It means to indulge in the goodness of God's bounty. To enjoy the sheer extravagance from God's hand. Involve, include other people. And make it be a time of, as the Bible says, a time of merriment and gladness. We mentioned it two weeks ago, Psalm 127. And the scripture tells us about the bread of sorrow. But Ecclesiastes 9.7 tells us about the bread of joy. Eat your bread with joy, the scripture says. Enjoy your wine with merriment and involve others. It's a place. It's a place to eat. It's a place for us uh, to express our gratitude. And it's a place for us to belong and to help other people experience that belonging. Probably one of the more uh, popular phrases in the scripture is that prayer about our daily bread. You know this, don't you? Give us this day our daily bread. And both words are so important. I call your attention this morning to that word, daily. In Nehemiah 9.19, it talks about how God led His people with a pillar, with a cloud, day by day. He gave them manna from heaven, day by day. It tells us in Psalm 110 and verse 3 that He renews our strength like the morning dew. What's the morning dew? Each and every single day. Lamentations 3.23 His mercies are new every single morning, day by day. Jesus taught us in Matthew 6.34 Do not worry about what? What you will eat or drink. Do not worry about your body and what you'll be clothed. Do not worry about tomorrow. Why? Because today is sufficient. You and I are to live day to day. And then this prayer, part of it is included in Luke 11, 3. Give us this day our daily bread. Now if you're a note taker, write that word daily down. And then write, that's God's way. God's way is a daily way. And I know some of you this week and recently in your life, you've had a hard time laying down at night. Your worries about tomorrow are the bed bugs that are biting you. And that's your worry. And Jesus said, today, let's live a day at a time. Jesus implored his people. It was not so much a thing of greed, but a thing of fear. And 
Actually, think of trust. Can you trust me? Can you trust me with today? And when you write the word bread down, write two words. First, longing. And then write the word limits. You see, the longing represents our hunger. And the limits represent our humanity. In 1978, an unknown actor named Christopher Reeves was selected to play the lead role in the movie Superman. This movie, everyone knows, went on to be a major hit. It spawned many singles, uh, many sequels rather, and made him a star. In so many ways, Christopher Reeves in real life was the embodiment of the ideal of Superman. He was tall, athletic, he was handsome. He uh, was an expert in so many things. He did his own stunts. He was a licensed pilot. Twice he flew solo across the Atlantic. He was an expert scuba diver, skier, salesman, and horseman. And on a beautiful spring day in 1995, Superman was performing an equestrian competition just outside of Charlottesville, Virginia. And this horse flung him off and he fell head first, fracturing the upper vertebrae in his spine, leaving him paralyzed. He couldn't feel anything in his body. He couldn't move his arms and legs. He couldn't breathe without assistance. For years, a lot of you know, he was a champion and a spokesperson. But a few years later, he died. You see, Superman, superhuman, is a myth, it's a fable, it's a comic book character. When you and I sit around the table, as God so desires, and we pray a prayer along those lines, God, give us this day our daily bread. We are expressing a longing, a hunger. And many times, usually for most of us, it's three, sometimes more times a day, right? We've got a hunger. We've got a longing that's a physical one. But in Scripture, the physical hunger and longing is tied to that spiritual sustenance. We have a, a longing to be fed with, with food and bread unseen. And when we sit around the table and we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we're acknowledging our limits. We're saying, in essence, God, we are not Superman. And we not only need the provision, that provision, that source comes from outside of ourselves. Give us this day our daily bread. But it's bigger than that, y'all. So much bigger. What do you need from God every day? I saw a couple of you a moment ago when I mentioned Lamentations 3.23 when it says His mercies are new every morning. Don't you need that every day? God's mercies in your life. Every day. But some of you come this morning with a real sense of God, I need you to provide. And you know that that source has got to be Him. You know that that source has got to be outside of you. You feel inadequate. Write down, if you will, we don't, we didn't, I didn't take time to put it up, but 2 Corinthians 2.16. Paul says, in all these matters, are we adequate? You feel overwhelmed with things in life, not able to make the goal, hit the target, 
not able to get the job, land the skill, learn the new thing, not able to stay in the marriage or keep things afloat? Do you feel a sense of inadequacy? In all these things, are we adequate? He asked in 2 Corinthians 2.16. But skip ahead, I like to do that. In 2 Corinthians 3.5, he says, Our adequacy is from God. He's the one. He's the one who provides. Wouldn't it be beautiful if around the table we had more and more stories of God's provision? Were you here last week? Did you enjoy that? Did you miss me? Don't answer. Did we miss them? Don't answer. Were we at a five-store resort? Yes. Paid for by you? No. But examples of what people would say, I, I need you, God. Give us this day our daily bread. Does that mean food? You bet. Does it mean physical nourishment and sustenance? Oh, yes. But it's analogous. It mirrors something so much more. God, will you provide? I need you. And last week, I think you were moved. I was when Nick and Gary sent me the video. Yes, I was at a five-star resort, a palatial place overlooking the Pacific in Catalina Island. But I looked at this video that you saw right before around the table last week when Gary had these guys up here. But to hear from Emily and to hear from Walter, to hear from John and Michelle, to tell their story of inadequacy, but to point to Christ who is their adequacy. It's a beautiful thing. The Bible is a dangerous book. You and I have this proclivity, this tendency to take it and twist it and make it something that it's not to suit us, to make it our preference, to fit our whims and our taste. But know that the depth of this prayer that Jesus gives us, specifically in Luke 11, give us this day our daily bread. Listen to the language. Give us our daily bread. It's never meant to be an isolated individual prayer. It's us together. That means perhaps that when we sit around as a couple or as roommates or as a family around a table and we see God's provision in our lives, if we have food, then we think about those who do not. This morning I'm giving you two things, our daily bread. And the second thing is table manners. What type of table manners ought the church to have? Are we to have? You and I together. Think with me for a moment about a, a youth director. Picture a youth director. Maybe you had one you had back in the day. That youth director stands before a group of, say, 30 high school kids. And he's fired up. But he's really fired up that they're not fired up about Jesus. And he's wondering why they're not fired up. He tries to do new things and try new programs. He goes to the, the really famous church and he learns from the famous church hoping that he gets transferable skills. He heard from the pastor and from that student pastor. And he's hoping all that he learned will be transferable so he can get the youth group fired up about Jesus. But think for a moment about 
that youth group. They're at a church that's on a road that has a Best Buy, a Chili's, a Circuit City, right across the street from a McDonald's, a Walmart, and a Bed Bath & Beyond. And those youth, they listen to music produced by one of five major corporations. The same corporations, in fact, that produce the movies that they watch, that are sister corporations of advertising agencies that dictate what commercials they see and thus what clothes they buy, what cell phones they purchase, even what ringtones they desire. The same corporations that are involved in the advertising agencies that show those commercials with the artists who are on the ringtones who work for the very same record labels that are, that are in concert with those other corporations. And there they are. That, that artist with that record label tied into those corporations, the same five to ten, he is on this commercial, singing this song, drinking a beverage that's also one of the corporations that's owned by the recording label and the advertising agency and one of those corporations that makes all the mu mu music and the movies and signs people to those deals. And the kids do what? They order that ringtone on that phone and drink that beverage. And the ringtone from that artist, from that record label, from that advertising agency, from that same corporation. And the kids buy that ringtone on that phone that they got at the mall, next to the Olive Garden, close to the Home Depot, just down from the Starbucks. Now you're wondering, where is he going with this? And I am too, in fact. <laughs> But in the world in which we live, that those youth live, who don't seem to be so fired up about Jesus. In this world, how can you and I hear? How can we take seriously a Messiah who said, I came to preach good news to the poor. That the chief end and aim is to seek and to save those who are lost, to see the hurting and the downcast, to those who are forlorn and broken, to see them enfolded with a Savior, a God who created them, a God that wants to love them and sustain them. In this world, how can it be? The world in which we live where other people think for us, other people dictate so many of our measures and our moves in life. Here's what I would love for you to understand. That we in so many ways, we have to get outside of this world to understand the book called the Bible. For you see, most of the Bible was written regarding a history of people who lived in a land of conquering superpowers, major corporations, if you will. A majority of the Bible is about a minority people who are under the reign and rule of massive, superpowering, conquering empires. Do you know this? 
the Egyptian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, the Roman Empire. And the Bible is in so many ways. It's an oppressed narrative about a people needing freedom. It's about the underside of the power regime. Now what could it do to us as a church if we began to see the Scripture for what it is in its historical, cultural context? If we began to look and to wonder what are the powerful forces of this world that have such a gravitational pull on our lives, what could it do to us? What ought it do to us as the church? Moses thought his people ought to know over and over. They ought to hear the Exodus story. They ought to hear the story of where they used to be and how God called them out and set them free. And that in hearing that and in telling that story over and over, they would be granted the freedom that God had really given them. Have you noticed that about walking with Jesus? Positionally, you know what the Bible says about you? It says you're perfect. If you're sitting next to someone, tell them, look at them and say, say you're perfect. Now that's hard to do. And that was hard to do, especially if you're married to that person, right? I mean, that was difficult. Yet maybe sort of a healing bomb this morning. The scripture says that in Christ we're sealed to the day of redemption. It says that in Ephesians 1. It says that in 1 Peter that we have everything that we need for life and godliness. We are in his hand. Nothing can pluck us out, Jesus taught. We are perfect in God's eyes positionally, but practically we have to walk it out. You and I need to tell the Exodus story. You and I need to share the gospel with each other over and over again. We put it up two weeks ago, Deuteronomy 8. I'd love for you to read the whole chapter. But Moses, in telling the Exodus story, here's why he tells them the Exodus story. He says that otherwise, if you're not careful, otherwise when you eat and you're satisfied, when you build fine homes and you settle down, when your herds and your livestock grow large, when your silver and your gold increase, when all that you own multiplies, your heart will go proud and you will not remember the Lord your God. You see, accumulation has blessing, doesn't it? Superpowers and major corporations and lands like ours acquire. And what does accusation, what does acquisition rather, do for us? Well, let's think about it. In the land of plenty. And if you've been reading and some of you have been traveling and some of you have been in part of global mission efforts in our church or any other for that matter, you know some of the things that I know that over 90% of the world doesn't own a car. That 1.8 billion people do not have electricity. That 1.1 billion people cannot sign or even read their name. That 840 million people go to bed tonight hungry. That 27 million people are known as modern day slaves. Many of them in the sex slave industry. 
that 157 million children around the world go to work, work every single day just to survive. Now, if you know those stories, those statistics, whether reading or traveling or some other endeavor of learning or experience, it can produce guilt, can it? Because we have so much. But guilt is not helpful. Honesty is helpful. Awareness is helpful. Knowledge is helpful. But guilt is not helpful. Two weeks ago I stood here, I sat here actually, behind the table. I said, go home and read Luke 14. When Jesus talked about table manners and who he said the church ought to invite around the table. And also to read Isaiah 58, verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. And see what the scripture says about those who don't have. And it leads me to today, to the last little bit of us thinking corporately about being a church and coming around the table. Two and a half plus years ago, there were a few of us in a living room. And we began to dream a little bit. And part of what I put in front of the people was Acts 9.31. If you love me, you'll memorize that verse. But it talks about a church that, uh, that's so, uh, so attractive to me. It says that they enjoyed peace, that they built one another up as they enjoyed this peace. That they continued on in the fear of God and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And the church, it says, increased. You know, that always happens when we love each other. Now, it doesn't mean we blow up like a church on steroids. It, it, it attaches no numerical value to that, even though the Scripture over and over does drop numbers on us to give us an idea of the scope of what God is doing. But I thought, what a beautiful, beautiful picture of what the church should be because I know what some of you know, that the church has in so many ways beaten people up. That the church at times has become a bloated bureaucracy. It's become about the ego of a few people. It's become about a tradition or a formality or a tearing down of people where people don't enjoy each other. There's not a gladness and sincerity that Acts 2 talks about. And we envisioned a church where people would really enjoy each other. Where we'd have laughter and conversation. Where people would tell their stories and we would grow together. Where those realities, because it's a spiritual endeavor, you got to pay the bills, you got to have strategy, you got to have planners, you got to have systems and structures and processes in place. I told you, we don't have many policies. We have conversations with people. There'll never be a thick notebook around here. But there's certain things that got to be in place. But oh, that God would give us the fear of God. Uh, this week, I think on Tuesday it was, I drove my 85-pound golden retriever close to Charles and Linda where you guys live. If you know uh, Ridgewood and Douglas, I believe it is. And there's this open lot with this massive stone gorilla. You ever seen this gorilla? 
It's just this massive, Tyler knows what I'm talking about, this massive, I think teenagers uh, through the years have tried to remove this gorilla, dress it up. It weighs multiple tons. This gorilla's not going anywhere. It's this statue and it just stares. It's Bubba George. Okay, Charles can tell us the history of this, of this gorilla just down the street from him. But my dog... Kiffin, who was recently fired at USC, my dog Kiffin <laughs> saw this gorilla for the first time and cowered in fear. He jumped from the back seat to the front seat, from front passenger to in my lap. Did I tell you he weighs 85 pounds? I was operating a moving vehicle. The second time we went by the gorilla, Bubba George, I've learned. The second time we went by the gorilla, Kiffin bowed up and started barking at him something fierce. Now he kind of enjoys the gorilla. Now what is fear? The kind of fear of God that the scripture is talking about is not a fear that whimpers and whines and runs from. It's not the kind of fear that barks playfully at or tries to return the fear. But it's this reverential awe. It's the kind of fear that makes you want to, in reverence, in worship, in awe, go towards. Now Hebrews tells us God is a consuming fire. You want to preach that one? You know what I think that means? That God's a consuming fire. He is greater than me and greater than you, and we better be careful. But it says to us in Hebrews 4 that you and I ought to come boldly to the throne of grace. Throne, kingdom, royalty, God. But we come boldly to the throne of grace to find mercy and help in our time of need. I pray that we would grow in the fear of God. Some of you were afraid to come to Fondren Church because of me. And you thought it would be just one joke after another. I want us to have fun, but I want us to grow in our fear of God and also in our comfort of the Holy Spirit. As a church family, I want to share with you a few things. You probably come most Sunday or however frequently you come. You probably have some expectations about what you'll experience when you come. But we too want to, for just a few moments, talk to you about expectations for our church family. I notice leaders of organizations, churches in particular, their lead guy will stand up at least once or twice a year and will give a talk and say a few things that they need to hear once or twice a year. And there's a chance that some of you may have heard me say a couple of these things that I'm going to share quickly. But I think it's a significant time in the life of our church. The first thing we're going to say to you is something maybe you haven't heard, but you've heard about it. But here we are as a church. It's not going to change who we are. We believe it's going to enrich who we are. But we're asking you to consider a few things. First of all, we're asking you to consider joining our church. This word, join. Now, look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. If you have a Bible, a hard copy, I'd love for you to turn there quickly if you're good like that and circle a few words. If not, just play along. <laughs> so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and, say it, 
members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now go back, Will, or Kirk, if you will. And write now, circle the word citizens. Circle the word members. Circle the word household. The next slide. Circle the word joined together. Circle the word built together. Circle the words dwelling place. You see, over and over in Scripture, there's this call that we would belong together. And what we're doing now, over the weeks ahead, is we're beginning to lay the groundwork for you, if you're so called, if you're so desirous to become, you ready for this? A member of our church. Some of you have been on me and on me and on me. You want to transfer your letter. You want to walk the aisle. You want to do whatever it takes to be a member of this church. But according to the spirit of Acts 15.9, I preached it a couple of months ago, we're not going to make it difficult for people to come to God. We want you, if you feel called to join us, to look at our site and to look at the values that we talked about that I've shared for the last two and a half years, the gospel enjoyment, intentional community, and prayerful mission, all that stem from that passage in Acts 9.31. Gospel enjoyment is that we would really enjoy each other. We would share life with a gladness and sincerity, that we would do so in peace, building each other up. That means that you and I are called to admonish each other, to speak the truth in love, but to always assume the best in the other, to be careful about questioning the intentions of others. I love it when some of you email me or call me or come see me about something constructive. But it's a, it's a tough moment when you question our intentions. It's cruel in a church family. It's cruel in a home. But the way that we can build each other up into a living temple is the way the early church, did you see what it said? It didn't say try to be like a church down the street or try to follow the trends or the fads. But we've got something built on the, the apostles and the prophets, their teaching and what their lives exemplified. The second thing we're asking of you is to pray for your leaders. Look at Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. In other words, you don't just pray for your leaders, but you get in the leadership pipeline. Don't just observe. What's God calling you to do? What's God calling you to lead? Hebrews 13, 17. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them. The staff this week, I asked them, what could I say, what should I say to our church family on Sunday? And one of them said, I think people have a problem with church leadership. Who said it? Will Sanders. <laughs> Who was he talking about? Hopefully not you. But you know we do. You know who else has had trouble with church leadership? I've had trouble with church leadership. For today, the church can be about ego-driven guys and rock stars and people that will teach and run or rake and run when they serve and aren't involved as shepherds and caregivers. 
There's a lot to this thing called leadership. And none of us are perfect. But I do believe God is richly blessing this fellowship of people. Third thing is to invest. What do I mean by that? To give. I don't have it up there, but read later Matthew 6 where Jesus talks about th this earth and the things that rust and rot and decay where moths eat. And then he talked about eternity that we can invest in. And we're praying for a church where we can all learn to give in some regard. I've shared this before. I'm going to share it fast for some of you. I think you need to know this because we're bragging on God. But when we started our church, this church, my wife and I left an established church. And we did so with some friends, maybe a few of you in this very room. But we knew within a matter of a couple of months that we would no longer have something important to most families, a paycheck. We prayed about that. And we chartered our church so that we be, would become official. So that some of you could start giving. Somebody gave $500. Woo-woo! $1,600. Money was trickling in. Then the guy who looks at our finances, we asked him our account balance one day. He said it was 40 something thousand dollars. I swallowed. He said somebody gave $30,000. We had a worship service in here in June of just two and a half years ago. A friend of mine came that night to worship with us and he sat right there. I thought, what's that guy doing in church? Do we want him here? Well, we didn't know what we were doing that night. We still don't. But they passed around. We passed around to plates. And he wrote a check for $75,000. Don't you wish you could do that? I wish you could too. <laughs> And that very night, someone sat over there with where Mitch Davis is sitting now, and they wrote a check for $15,000 that same night. And we went home that night alone with over $100,000. And in the room just weeks before, uh, my wife and I had a little bit of worry. She would look at me and say, Robert, do we know what we're doing? And that night when my worrisome wife fell asleep, I next to her started crying. The tears of gratitude, enveloped by His love, give us this day our daily bread. And I began to realize that God really does want to provide. And that He's going to take care of her, and He's going to take care of them, and He's going to take care of me, and He always has. But I was overwhelmed with a sense of what now shall we do? We're just getting started. And I made a vow. Do you ever make a vow to the Lord? Be careful if you do. But I made a vow, and it was sort of a prayer slash vow, where I said, Lord, I would love for our church to be able to give away what came in tonight. What came in tonight, I would love for our church to be able to give that away within the first year. To people in need, to meet the needs of people in our church, especially single moms and dads and people in need. And you know, we were able to do that. Within the first 365 days, we had given away more than $100,000. And you see where God guides, He provides. And it may not always be right out of the chute. But when I stand in front of you today and talk about us coming around the table, I'm telling you, God is providing for our church. Now listen to me. 
we're paid and we're taken care of. God is providing for us as He is a few others. And we're doing this the best we know how. You're not going to believe in every church and follow every leader blindly. But I'm telling you, we're making good use of the resources here. We're going to submit a budget by the end of the year. I think it's going to make you proud. Uh, most of the staff who serve here, are, are they're bivocational. Isn't that cool? They get their own dental plans and stuff. Now, you pay me a lot of money, but the other folks, not so much. <laughs> Give us this day our daily bread. Here's what I want to say to you. And I want you to know that I'm saying it out of a little bit of surplus. Fondren Church has money in the bank. We've got, what, 75, 80 days, and we're having conversations about how much more do we give away. I'm bragging on God. I hope you know this. Somebody said to me the other day, Robert, it's got to feel rewarding that you've started this. How silly is that? I rebuke them to their face. You know, God, when He does a work, He calls out a man or a woman, doesn't He? But we have started this. You and I together. I remember that living room where I was in a few years ago when Jonathan Grantham said, hey man, you're our pastor and this is our church and we're coming with you. How cool is that? To see people and people like them come around us so that we could be a church family. We could be a relational church and we could be a generous church. And I'm telling you, God has only begun. And I want to say to you, we are careful. I think we're perilously close to 20% of the people doing 80% of the giving and 80% of the participation and 80% of the serving. And if you're in the 20%, I say, don't grow weary. And if you're in the 80%, I say just consider what God says. Become a percentage giver of your time and of your talent, of your treasure, of everything. I say that for your benefit. I say it a little bit, not so that we can eat. We're good. I don't say it so I can get a raise at the end of the year, maybe a little bonus, but not a big raise. But we're good. I'm saying this for our church. And I'm saying this for you because I want you to know the blessing of giving. Just start. Maybe you can't go to 10 or beyond. But maybe you could start with 2% or 5%. Participate. Live out with us the one another's of what the Bible is talking about. Over the next couple of weeks, some of you in the room will get a heartfelt letter and invitation from me. And we're going to deem you charter members of our church because you've been with us during this stretch. You came early. But we're not going to give you chief seats at the synagogue or preferential treatment. We're just going to say thank you because you're part of history making here. And then others of you, all others of you, we are saying if God is calling you here to join us, do so. And we're going to invite you to hear more about our church and more about our values, to take an hour and a half to come and to meet our team and to talk more about our church and to explore where God is calling us. There's a lot I want to share with you. We will in the weeks to come. Remember I said we had money in the bank? And we believe in some manner God is calling us to secure the, the church home for our future. But where will that be? Don't you want to know? Well, I wish I could tell you today, but we don't know. But I ask you to pray for us as leadership and to be involved in the good things that God has in store.
for our church. Membership for us is not going to be some Gestapo type accountability tactics. We don't want it to be a matter of imposition. We want it to be a matter of inspiration. If you want to be jointed and knit together. If you read Ephesians 2, 19 to 22 and say, that sounds good. We know God is calling us to be a part of a local church. This one called Fondren. We're going to invite you to come in and let me tell you who it will really help. You ready for this? Me. It'll help me. In these critical days of our church as we move ahead, I would really love to know of your commitment level. I'd really love to know if you're in, if you're going to be a part, and you're going to invest in this church family. Pray with me. God, we lift up this day. And Lord, I thank you for the love that is in this room and the family that you're producing here. Lord, I thank you for folks who've given and invested here and who've participated, who make up this team effort. Lord, I pray that we would be examples individually and corporately of this great prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. That people would look and see your provision in our lives. But Lord, as we think about this church in the future, Lord, lead us in our table manners. Lead us to think about empty chairs and people without. Let us gather with merriment and gladness and sincerity. Let us drink the wine and eat the bread of joy. Let us learn the discipline of fasting when we seek you and understand more our longings and our limits. And Jesus, I pray that you would teach us in our feasting that in our abundance, Lord, we would realize the Exodus story. The Messiah who said he came to preach the good news to the poor. Lord, let us grow Lord, let us grow in your timetable and in your way. Lord, I'm thankful for people here in this very room. Lord, that are a part of what you're doing. Lord, I pray more and more that minds would be renewed, souls would be saved, marriages would be restored children would have what they need. Lord, I pray you continue to blow the lid off this place of people who see giving as an act of worship. And Lord, let us as a church be worthy of the stewardship, worthy of the trust of your people. Seeking you, fearing you, and moving on in the comfort of the Holy Spirit.